This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachrin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Politics and Polemics. Today, I'm speaking to journalist Peter S. Goodman to discuss his new book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Peter is the global economics correspondent for the New York Times. In this book, he catalogs the exploits of several prominent billionaires and their political allies. They have waged a dual campaign. The Davos Man has convinced the world that they are capable of saving it, while simultaneously gutting governments through austerity and tax-avoidant schemes. In cinematic fashion, Peter unspools the myth of the Davos Man. Peter, thank you for joining us today on the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your personal background and what inspired you to write this book. Well, in many ways, this book is the outgrowth of 20 years of journalism. Um, I've been writing about uh, the global economy, more or less, for 20 years. When I uh, went off to China, I was I was at the Washington Post. I'd covered the the dot com bubble as a technology reporter, and I went off to China as the Asian economic correspondent at a time uh, when China was uh, re- emerging as a global superpower and uh, really transforming uh, much of the global economy. And then I uh, came back to the states and and uh, covered the First, I did international economics out of the New York Bureau for the Post, and then I jumped to the New York Times just in time for the Great Recession. Uh, and I covered the Great Recession and the, and the global financial crisis, wrote a book about that that came out in 2009 called Past Due, The End of Easy Money and the Renewal of the American Economy. Uh, and then um, I went off and uh, was an editor for a few years, both at the Huffington Post, where I ran business and technology and international news. And then I was the global editor in chief of an operation called the International Business Times, where we took this uh, aggregator and turned it into a source of, of, of really significant, for a while at least, uh, in original reporting. And then I, I went back to the Times in 2016 uh, and went off to London just in time for Brexit. Uh, and, and then, of course, uh, the arrival of Donald Trump and the global trade war. And I, I was in Europe uh, noting, I mean, this was hardly an original observation, that something significant was changing in the global economy. There were all of these right-wing populist movements from the Philippines to Brazil, of course, to Trump in my own country, Brexit, where I was living. Uh, in Italy, uh, we had this uh, lurch to the right, especially in parts of the country that had traditionally been uh, communist strongholds. Even in Sweden, the supposed bastion of social democracy, 
Uh, we saw the Sweden Democrats, this this party that uh, goes all the way back to the neo-Nazi movement, uh, emerge from the political wilderness to become a mainstream political party. And and I came to see that you know all of these movements had something in common, uh, and that was uh, the part that didn't get discussed that much, uh, and that was the this bottom up transfer of wealth that had played out gradually but steadily over decades. And, and it had happened in plain view, and yet it almost seemed invisible because it was so gradual. It was it was like you know, so, sort of like climate change, it, where nobody really cares that a waterway next to their house is increasing by a fraction of a millimeter per year until suddenly there's a massive storm uh, and their basement's flooded and uh, people are on the rooftops waiting for rescue. And and the this lurch to the right uh, that I was witnessing, I mean, it was really. Uh, quite striking and destabilizing. And and on the surface, there was always the same story. You know, there's a backlash to immigration. There was a, a tribalist, a nativist response to some crisis. But if you, if you dug uh, just a little bit deeper, and you didn't have to dig that deeply, what you discovered was that significant numbers of people had concluded, quite rightfully, that their needs, their ability to support their families at a middle-class standard had just ceased to matter to the elite that was running their country. And that had set uh, up the ground for right-wing opportunists to come along and demonize outsiders. You know, in, in Britain, it was about immigration. Trump, of course, uh, focused not only on immigrants, but also on China as the supposed uh, lethal threat to American living standards. Uh, immigration was the cause in, in France and, and in Italy and in Sweden. And so I started to map out a book that would tell that story, that would connect inequality to the rise of right-wing populism. And then, of course, as I'm thinking about this book, the pandemic happens. And for a few weeks, it seems like nobody cares about anything other than the pandemic. And uh, I'm a guy, uh, not unlike somebody writing a Cold War history, as the Berlin Wall falls. And I, I put it in a drawer until I pretty quickly see that the pandemic strengthens my thesis, that it exposes and reveals and also enhances uh, all of uh, the vulnerabilities of inequality. That suddenly, you know, as, as, as if history is just accelerating, uh, we, are, we are witnessing the consequences of concentrating more and more wealth in uh, just a, a handful of, of people uh, this bottom-up transfer of wealth that has left our our healthcare systems unable to cope, uh, that has left huge numbers of people having to choose between their paychecks and uh, their health. Uh, as uh, of course, you know, I, I detail in the book the story of, of uh, Jeff Bezos uh, juxtaposed against Amazon warehouse workers who quite literally have to choose between you know eviction, uh, inability to pay their bills, bankruptcy. And going to work without any protective gear in the midst of the pandemic. And that's just one of countless examples. So, you know, I, I realized that the, at that point, writing the book had become just a screaming emergency. Uh, and we were, in fact, uh, threatened uh, by this lethal pandemic made stronger by the very uh, forces I'd been contemplating. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting how much the pandemic um, started to reveal or, you know, really showed some of these characters like Schwartzman and Fink and how they came to the fore in a way that I had not really known who they were until the pandemic when they became these major players. 
Uh, and in your book, you focus on several people in particular that are for you the kind of archetypal Davos men. And I was wondering, why did you call your book uh, Davos Man? And what is a Davos man? And who are some of the main characters? Yeah, that's a really important question. So Davos Man is this term coined by the political scientist Samuel Huntington back in 2004. And he was using it loosely to refer to people who attend the World Economic Forum, this glittering gathering of uh, heads of state, billionaires, the odd celebrity, uh, famous academics in the Swiss Alps village of Davos every January. He was referring to the tribe of billionaires whose fortunes are so complex and vast that they uh, spread across jurisdictions uh, so they don't really have allegiance to any particular country, any tradition, any ideology. They're, they're just beholden to the bottom line. I've come to use it to uh, differentiate this particular species of human from the rest of humanity. Uh, it's the billionaire class that would have us believe and that has quite successfully gotten us to believe that uh, their success is our success, that when we organize our economies around uh, sending more wealth to the people who already have most of it, we somehow all win. And that if we interfere with their wealth, uh, our prosperity collectively uh, is threatened. And we've been living in a half century era uh, during which uh, that idea has had uh, central currency in our policymaking. And so I wanted to understand, you know, what sorts of stories does Davos man tell himself to justify this really quite absurd idea? I mean, I spent a lot of time delineating what I refer to in the book as the cosmic lie, this, which is essentially trickle-down economics and the belief that tax cuts and deregulation, which always overwhelmingly benefit wealthiest people and shareholders, somehow benefit everyone else, something that has in reality happened zero times. And I wanted to try to the best of my abilities to kind of get inside the minds of the billionaire class and understand, is this just public relations? Are, are these narratives that these guys really believe? And, and I realized that I couldn't just write about Davos Man as this sort of composite of the billionaire class. That wouldn't be a very satisfying book, and it wouldn't get us anywhere in terms of understanding the psychology involved. I needed to pick some characters I could follow. Uh, and I could have picked other characters. There are many Davos men not in my book who could have told the story just as effectively. But, you know, I had watched over the years Mark Benioff, who's uh, because I've been to Davos uh, something like nine times. And uh, Mark Benioff is a member of the Board of Trustees. He's the CEO of a big Silicon Valley tech company called Salesforce. And Benioff quite famously said, while I was in the midst of doing the research for my book, this is at virtual Davos uh, in 2021. Uh, he says, CEOs are the real heroes of the pandemic. I mean, think about that. Not not frontline medical workers, not the people delivering our food or working in slaughterhouses or emptying bedpans in senior citizens' homes. No, CEOs are the heroes of the pandemic. And he goes on to say, you know, we delivered vaccines and credit to stave off bankruptcies. Government didn't save you, he says. Non-governmental organizations didn't save you. We saved you and not for profit, but just to save the world. And, you know, that is just a remarkable uh, worldview that I think personifies 
this whole ideology that I'm interested in excavating and, and bringing to light uh, for the lay reader. But, you know, initially I wasn't so much focused on on the forum as more than a kind of way into the book. Uh, I, I thought back as, as I was plotting out how to explore the nexus of inequality with right-wing populism with this Davos I had attended in January of 2017. So this is, you know, six months into Brexit, Trump's about to be inaugurated, and the people at the World Economic Forum are at least paying lip service to this idea that something has really gone wrong with the whole, you know, uh, liberal democratic order is the future of uh, uh, human civilization. Uh, we better figure out what's going on. Oh, inequality is really a problem. There are problems with faith in uh, corporate governance. Uh, there's just a disconnect between the elites and ordinary people. Let's look into that. And so there were all these earnest panel discussions. Sheryl Sandberg was there leading a discussion on uh, how to better humanity. I mean, let's remember the World Economic Forum, it, it unspools under this banner of committed to improving the state of the world, which is this incredible mantra for an organization that uh, is uh, dominated by people who are, by any measure, the the ultimate beneficiaries of the status quo. Uh, so I, I decided that in, this is January 2017 to wander around, go into these panel discussions to see, you know, what does Davos man have on offer as a way to solve inequality? And uh, what I found was uh, people like Ray Dalio, a hedge funder then worth about $18 billion, said, you know, what we need to do is deregulate further. Uh, there need to be more tax cuts to create a more conducive atmosphere for the making of money, which was uh, quite an interesting thing to hear from someone who, despite this apparent scarcity of ways to make money, had managed to accumulate $18 billion. Uh, I listened to my former boss, Ariana Huffington, who had just launched this wellness website that was dedicated to vacuuming up sponsorships from spa resorts and skin cream companies, uh, say that the answer to inequality was uh, more comfortable pillows, meditation, and more sleep. I, I listened to the head of a large Indian consulting company say that workers had to take more responsibility for their skills and they had to train themselves. Like I basically heard everything except for those of us who are here who have most of the money need to figure out how to share some of it with uh, the other 8 billion plus inhabitants or 8 billion, give or take, inhabitants of planet Earth. Uh, and and that was not by accident. Um, it, it, the whole central operating principle of Davos is that every problem has a win-win solution, which is a handy way of saying that no one has to sacrifice. And by the way, we're all the good guys. And because we're the good guys, the more money we have, the more good we can do. And I realized that that was a perfect way into uh, a book about uh, inequality and this bottom-up transfer of wealth, because it hadn't happened by accident. I mean, I, this is not some sort of puppeteer conspiracy. This is all stuff that's happened in plain view. But the billionaire class has, over half a century, uh, unleashed lobbyists, tax accountants, and lawyers to uh, shape our economies in the, in, the, in the wealthy countries of the world uh, in their interest. And, and that's what my book really had to be about. But to understand that in a satisfying way, I needed to dive into the actual machinations of individual people. So I settled on Benioff, Steve Schwartzman, the world's largest private equity magnate, Larry Fink, 
who is the world's largest asset uh, manager. This is a guy who founded BlackRock, a company that now manages $10 trillion in investment. Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, America's largest bank. And of course, Jeff Bezos. He needs no introduction. At the beginning of the book, uh, when you're first laying out Davos, uh, you talk about Davos's founder, Klaus Schwab. And Schwab seems in many ways, especially with his influence on Benioff, to be the kind of architect of this, uh, this ideology that you take to task. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk about Schwab uh, and his beliefs and his influence on the attendees of Davos. Yeah, well, Schwab is, a, is an ideal Davos man, because if you ask about his values, you know, they're, they're sort of unobjectionable. Uh, this is a guy who believes in public-private partnerships. He believes in social democracy. He believes in European integration and social safety nets and progressive taxation. He thinks we should tackle climate change and uh, deal with the fact that uh, automation is threatening employment. We've got to figure out how to, how to make uh, labor more secure. I mean, if you ask him individual questions about issues, you get a sort of classic uh, European uh, steeped in American management uh, theories of his generation. I mean, he's an economist who speaks in this kind of farcically uh, thick uh, German accent. Uh, he's the subject of, of some ridicule uh, for his ego amongst the people who work for him. He goes around telling people that he's going to win a Nobel Peace Prize one day. He gets very upset if he is not treated as a uh, visiting head of state when he goes to visit uh, other countries. But this is a guy who has, on the strength of this idea that like we can solve the world's problems by gathering the most powerful people on top of a mountain in Switzerland, built a highly lucrative enterprise. On, on paper, the World Economic Forum is a nonprofit. Uh, in reality, uh, he and his wife, Hilda Schwab, uh, the co-founder, have dipped their beak uh, quite generously into the river of money flowing through the World Economic Forum. And I, you know, I detail in the, in the book how uh, at one point in the 90s, as Schwab spending a lot of time with people like Bezos uh, and uh, wanting some of the money that they're accustomed to, he sends his nephew, Hans, off to Boston uh, to go and uh, run a video conferencing software, thinking of Zoom 20 years earlier. Uh, and he stakes it with money from the nonprofit World Economic Forum. And Klaus Schwab builds out the technology. He builds partnerships with you know, very large tech companies, including Microsoft. And eventually he flips this startup to a publicly traded company called US WebCore and turns a $5 million stake into something like $20 million. And on the eve of the sale of uh, this startup to U.S. WebCore, uh, Klaus Schwab, the founder of the forum, calls up his nephew and says, hey, you know, one little wrinkle, uh, these, the proceeds of the sale, they need to go to a whole new place, this new foundation that his nephew had never heard of because it had just come into being. And this was the Klaus and Hilda Schwab Foundation uh, for Social Entrepreneurship which, you know, under Swiss law is basically like a black box. Like they put out a report that says they're using the proceeds to drill wells in, in Africa and uh, promote uh, the uh, inclusion of Pakistani girls in public education. 
But, you know, we're just taking it on their say-so that that's how it operates. And the signs of how the forum operates on the surface from what we can see are disconcerting. Uh, I mean, Schwab has tapped forum funds to, to spend something like uh, 70 million U.S. dollars uh, to purchase parcels of land that make contiguous his home in the colony section of Geneva. This is like the Beverly Hills of Geneva, right on Lake Geneva. And the forum headquarters next door, the forum headquarters is really extravagant. It's lined with photos of Schwab uh, entertaining heads of state most nights. Uh, there's a, a banquet at his residence, uh, all paid for by the forum for some uh, visiting dignitary. And it's created you know, quite a nice uh, life for himself. And along the way, Schwab has deviated from the values of the forum itself in, in quite pronounced ways. I mean, I've already told you about uh, how, how he handled this, this uh, profit-making venture. But, you know, in addition, he's, he's essentially building this uh, go-to global networking spot. And, and this is his real genius, by the way. Like, he understood that the world was already full of uh, just conventional business conferences where business people could get together under the banner of Forbes or Fortune or whatever and talk about how to make more money. Uh, he, by adopting this mantra, committed to improving the state of the world, turned Davos into this place where anyone who was a participant was by definition committed to improving the state of the world. They were the good guys. It became this kind of virtue signaling place. Uh, and, and so there's this public-facing uh, earnest set of panel discussions on climate change and uh, racial and gender inequality and the future of work and, you know, all the sorts of things that one might expect. But what's really going on is Schwab has gotten all these companies to use their participation in the forum to signal their virtues and to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in memberships for exclusive access to one another. So like, most of us, ordinary people go to Davos, we wander around to these panel discussions. The cool kids, the ones who are actually paying the bills, the CEOs of tech companies, of global consulting firms, of global banks, they will actually tell you, you know, as a mark of sophistication that they never go to any of those panel discussions. I mean, maybe they go inside to like go engage in the, I'm not making this up, simulation of the Syrian refugee experience. You know, this was running for a couple of years where they'll submit to being blindfolded and led around in the dark while someone's hollering at them, uh, demanding uh, papers in a language that they don't understand. And then they'll congratulate one another for the display of empathy and then go back outside to attend a banquet underwritten by HSBC where they'll, you know, drink champagne and, and eat white truffles. Uh, but by and large, what they do is they go to these exclusive lounges that they get access to by dint of paying these membership fees. And Klaus Schwab plays matchmaker. He will you know, make sure that the head of uh, a Middle Eastern uh, oil uh, company or a, a, a monarch who ha controls access to oil assets can meet in secret with the CEO of a European fossil fuel company without regulators knowing about it, without annoying journalists or human rights advocates or, or anybody. It's just sort of off balance sheet. And because the wealthy, powerful people know that this is what's going on, they can do a lot of business in the space of a few days. I mean, I've had CEOs tell me, 
you know, what would normally take me months to schedule in four days, I can, I can have 25 meetings and just do, do all of this business. And so that's, what's really happening. That's how it's, it's lucrative for the Schwabs. And at the same time, Schwab gets all these powerful people to come by laundering their legitimacy. I mean, the last time Trump showed up, this was right after handing out a $1.5 trillion package of tax cuts, uh, in part because of the lobbying of people like Jamie Dimon, then heading the business roundtable with the proceeds lavished on people like Jamie Dimon. Uh, Schwab actually, at the lectern, said, thank you so much, Mr. President, uh, for attending. Uh, we know that your leadership is subject to many misunderstandings, so it's good to hear from you personally. And then he praised Trump for being a beacon of inclusivity, for making the U.S. economy more inclusive. He praised Narendra Modi, uh, the Indian Hindu supremacist uh, leader, uh, within a month of a member of his party offering a million dollars for a bounty on the head of a Bollywood director who had offended uh, apparently some Hindu legend, Schwab praised Modi for his commitment to diversity. Uh, he, the year that I was telling you about before in 2017, the lead, uh, character was Xi Jinping and Schwab essentially said, uh, your people have entrusted you with leadership. And much of the audience is sitting there saying, oh, we, we, we missed the part where there was an election in China, uh, that, uh, elevated Xi Jinping. So uh, essentially he will say, uh, whatever needs to be said to ensure that powerful people continue to show up. And that's the real MO of the forum. And it offers a kind of laundering of legitimacy to its participants as well. Uh, and I'll just you know tell you one final forum story. I remember years ago, there was a panel discussion. There's a bunch of um, pharmaceutical company executives, including you know Gilead. This is a story I detail in, in, in the book, which at that point had you know, really uh, just just quite brazenly profiteered on uh, drugs for uh, people suffering from HIV. Uh, and, and they had this earnest panel discussion around, you know, the unaffordability of drug prices. You know, what's the source of this? And, and this CNBC uh, moderator uh, went around the table, well, what do you think? You know, what, why are drug prices so unaffordable? committed to improving the state of the world. Everyone at the table must be on the side of good. And so they all said, well, you know, maybe we haven't realized the right models yet. Uh, We need multi-stakeholder dialogues to get to the bottom of this. I mean, it's this open invitation to, uh, for anyone present to take the stance that they're on the side of human progress. Something you just mentioned at the end, um, something that, you know, you provide a very interesting discussion of is uh, is stakeholder capitalism and stakeholder capitalism is, you know, sort of this, this new model of capitalism that isn't all just about shareholders and the sort of Milton Friedman model. Uh, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this, this notion of stakeholder capitalism and its significance to the Davos men and sort of your take on what it actually is. Yeah, yeah, that's a super important question. So stakeholder capitalism is this term that I think Klaus Schwab actually invented back in the 70s. He's written books about stakeholder capitalism. It is supposed to be this kinder, gentler form of capitalism, uh, but it's it's gotten real currency in recent years thanks to people like Mark Benioff and Larry Fink and Jamie Dimon, who, when he was running the business roundtable, 
back in the summer of 2019, got 181 CEOs to actually sign off on the this um, statement of a purpose of a corporation that disowned Milton Friedmanism and this idea that if uh, companies were just managed to maximize profits to for shareholders, uh, society would somehow get the benefits of that. They 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 set that aside. They said that era is over now. Now we're catering to stakeholders, and stakeholders include labor, never labor unions. That's not a term that we see thrown around, or labor movements, but labor uh, and. Uh, local communities and uh, social concerns and the environment. At one point, Benioff actually went on a Jim Cramer show, Mad Money, and pronounced that the planet is a stakeholder, which is a very reassuring news for those of us who live on the planet. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's clear that stakeholder capitalism, it, I, I argue in the book, is this new way of the billionaire class protecting itself from the exercise of, you know, real stakeholderism. I mean, I think we should just get rid of that horrible term. Uh, but what would real stakeholderism look like? It would look like democracy. It would look like human beings exercising their democratic rights to have a say over things like progressive taxation and antitrust enforcement so we're not just subject to monopoly powers and rules that make it possible for labor to actually collectively organize uh, and uh, around getting their uh, piece of the pie. Uh, and, and stakeholder capitalism is a way of preempting all of that. And as I argue in the book, you know, the pandemic is the ultimate test of the principles of stakeholder capitalism. And the billionaire class failed that test uh, miserably. I mean, for openers, the Business Roundtable appoints as the head of a COVID-19 task force, uh, the late Arnie Sorensen, who was then the CEO of Marriott, uh, the world's largest hotel chain. And Arnie Sorensen uh, gets a lot of attention for this supposedly heroic trot in front of the cameras to announce in March of 2020 that he's just so incredibly sorry that he has to lay off 75% of his workforce in the United States, threatening their health care in the middle of a pandemic. And in a gesture of solidarity, I mean, this is the guy who's running the COVID-19 task force for the business roundtable, supposedly now governed by stakeholder capitalism. But in this act of solidarity, he's going to uh, give up his salary for the year, which is something like, if memory serves, $1.3 million. Doesn't say anything about his $8 million in stock-based compensation. And a couple weeks later, Marriott goes ahead and hands out uh, several million dollars in dividends to shareholders, enough to have financed uh, wages continuing for all of those workers for many months. Uh, and, and so uh, all we need to do is look at the fact that Jeff Bezos signs the business roundtable's statement of a purpose of a corporation and then uh, allows his warehouse workers to continue to work in his warehouses without protection during the worst phase of the pandemic when there's a labor uprising at a warehouse most prominently in Staten Island, New York. Uh, in March 2020, the leader of that movement, a guy named Christian Smalls, who I talked to in the book, is actually fired for supposedly violating quarantine, which quarantine, which is really ironic, given that he really wants everyone to be quarantined, but he wants people to have paid sick leave. And Amazon, of course, has lobbied over years to uh, prevent federal paid sick leave policies. And even when the Democrats force something through in the midst of the pandemic, it has so many loopholes that it doesn't affect most of the American workforce, again, not by accident because of the lobbying 
of Davos, man. Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, signs the statement of a purpose of a corporation and then uh, takes COVID vaccines, uh, pioneered with the help of a lot of publicly financed research, and sells them around the world to the highest bidder, such that if you're lucky enough to live in a wealthy country like the United States or the UK or Japan, you've got protection and most of humanity is shut out, uh, which means that we get not only the humanitarian catastrophe of doctors in places like West Africa, South Asia, continuing to treat COVID patients without any protection. But the result of this humanitarian catastrophe is that we're vulnerable to variants like Delta and Omicron. So even in wealthy countries, we are subsidizing the monopoly profits for shareholders of Pfizer through the perpetuation of our pandemic. We are paying through our shuttered schools and the disruption of our children's education through fear, through death, through continued hits to our livelihood so that Albert Borla, who signed the statement of a purpose of a corporation, can continue to basically just sell off these vaccines to the highest bidder. And finally, Larry Fink, who's probably the loudest uh, celebrant of stakeholder capitalism, signs the statement of a purpose of a corporation, and then uh, goes everywhere declaring that uh, COVID is bringing home, that this is a whole new era, and that corporations get it, and we can count on CEOs to take care of our problems. Quietly, this is a story I detail in the book, he turns the screws very personally on Argentina in the midst of the pandemic at a time when they're uh, seeing their healthcare systems overrun, when poverty's on the rise. He turns the screws to get pennies on the dollar extra in a settlement on the bonds that BlackRock has uh, bought into. Uh, and, and this is bigger than Argentina. Fink understands that there are huge numbers of countries throughout the developing world whose finances have been ravaged by the pandemic. They're going to have a hard time making good on their debt payments. And he clearly wants to send a signal to anybody else around the world that nobody stiffs Davos man. And as a result of that, despite his pledge to uh, society, to local communities, to the public interest. Uh, we have uh, a situation where uh, countries from uh, Africa to South Asia are actually cutting their healthcare spending. They're cutting their social safety nets to prioritize debt payments to financial centers like New York, Frankfurt, Beijing, and in large part because people like Larry Fink turn the screws. So we ought to uh, dismiss uh, any notion that stakeholder capitalism is real uh, and that, and we should see it for what it is. It's, it's an elaborate uh, public relations uh, contrivance that's designed to convince us that the billionaires have got this. We don't have to uh, menace them with uh, in, in nuisances like taxes and regulations and, and antitrust enforcement. We can just outsource our problems to them. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
Do you think that we would be better off if they just dropped the stakeholder capitalism label and just embraced Milton Friedman's sort of idea that, you know, the shareholder is is right and we should do everything that we can to benefit the shareholder with that? Would that at least be honest or yeah. is at least stakeholder capitalism, you know, there's some some good elements maybe that have come from it? I mean, look, if a company wants to organize itself to do right, that's great. I mean, my book's not about demonizing companies or, or demonizing billionaire CEOs. I mean, CEOs ought to treat their employees well. They ought to care about their local communities. If they do, that's great. But we can't count on it. I mean, we can't stand down as democratic societies and just put our faith in the in in the goodness of the people who have most of the money. That's just a sucker's game. So yeah, I think we would be better served by forgetting about stakeholder capitalism as this sort of broad declaration to organize around, because we're just going to end up in these uh, kind of tedious, nebulous debates about standards uh, when uh, what we should be doing is demanding transparency uh, and demanding policies that are under the control of uh, democratic governance, like progressive taxation and rules that give uh, labor unions uh, a, a, a shot at organizing toward their own interests. I mean, the thing about stakeholder capitalism is it's, it's always unilateral. You know, it's always like, you know, look at us being so generous and, and, and good. Um, and it's always like wrapped up in this whole narrative that, uh, deflects attention from what's really going on. I mean, I mean, Benioff, you know, will tell you, he lays out the story in his memoir that, you know, his whole idea for Salesforce came to him when he took this trip to Southern India, when he was having this existential crisis early in his career. And he, he met a woman he calls the hugging saint who in an incense filled room embraced him and told him that, the true meaning of his life was to amass a fortune and then figure out how to give back to society. And this, he says, was his inspiration for his philanthropy, for ensuring that uh, Salesforce uh, contributes 1% of its revenues and 1% of its staff time for philanthropic efforts. Hey, that's great. You know, that's that's all good. But it doesn't uh, amount to anything alongside the modest sum of zero that Salesforce has paid to the federal government in taxes a couple of times in recent years. And again, not by accident, because uh, Benioff uh, celebrated Trump's tax cuts, because Benioff is uh, part of the Business Roundtable and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And these are lobby shops that are designed to make sure that people like Mark Benioff get to hang on to most of his fortune. So, so any device that muddies the waters of what's really going on, uh, even if some good may come from it, uh, is contributing to our our overall confusion about what needs to happen, and 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 we need to set aside this idea that the billionaires are going to save us. Uh, there's a term that many people uh, typically, I think, use to describe the Davos Man ideology, uh, neoliberalism, and neoliberalism doesn't appear uh, as a concept in your book. Is there a reason why you chose not to use that term? Yeah, uh, because uh, Davos Mann will depart from neoliberalism the minute that it's in his interest. I mean, Davos Mann is all for rugged individualism and free markets when he has monopoly power and uh, the ability to write the rules in his favor. And when his assets are threatened by a financial crisis or a pandemic or whatever, and there's free money to be had from the government, uh, Davos Mann is all for that. Then Davos Mann is for welfare capitalism. So 
I mean, neoliberalism is really important, and it's been one of the tools in Davos Mann's toolkit. I mean, I, I do lay out uh, in the book the significance of, of, of Robert Bork, uh, who comes out of the Chicago school, uh, who uh, turns uh, what had been this really uh, fringe idea into a mainstream idea in, in the school of antitrust, uh, which is you know this concept that if consumers are not damaged by a merger immediately, then the government should just get out of the way and let any two companies uh, team up and consolidate and get bigger. Uh, and this clearly does not uh, work in a time when many companies are giving their products away for free. I mean, where's the consumer harm if Facebook and Google are letting us use their services for free? Or where's the consumer harm if Amazon can at least initially undercut all competitors and give us lower priced goods, setting us up for predatory pricing, or in the case of Google and Facebook, setting us up for you know a domination of of the online advertising market for vacuuming up our data in ways that are clearly uh, systemically harmful, uh, and, and so you know this this is uh, th- this clearly comes out of the Chicago School, and Davos Mann has uh, engaged in uh, proliferating these neoliberal concepts through think tanks, uh, through uh, the helpful work of access journalists who don't tend to scrutinize uh, the details of his operations uh, that uh, carefully and through, of course, his lobby shops. But I, but I feel like, you know, to call Davos man a neoliberal is to at least credit him for some kind of ideologically consistent position when, in fact, what we see time and again is Davos man is for whatever uh, in the moment leads to more tax cuts, more deregulation and more uh, potential public rescues in the moment of crisis. Yeah, I think you you demonstrate that really well, especially you know in the way in which the Davos men treat Trump when he visits. And there's a particularly interesting section of the book where you talk about how Stephen Schwartzman was leading Trump around Davos uh, and basically trying to convince everyone that that Trump's not actually racist. He doesn't actually have these nativist views. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Schwartzman and specifically how uh, Schwartzman has, you know, through his dealing, wheeling and dealing, uh, consolidated a lot of power in the healthcare sector and some of the uh, the immediate negative impacts that were especially felt in the pandemic as a result of this. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, Schwartzman is the key Davos man in terms of understanding Trump because uh, Schwartzman is a Trump apologist, you know, right up until January 6th. I mean, Schwartzman, even after the election, even after the other Davos men have broken, you know, is still defending uh, Trump's right to contest the election results and to, to drag out the results, you know, through the, the court system. Uh, you know, I'm glad you noticed this scene in, um, I guess it's uh, 2018, January of 2018, when Trump shows up at Davos. And, you know, for those of us in the press corps, the kind of conventional narrative is, oh, this is so titillating. It's like a prize fight. I mean, Davos man believes in multilateral cooperation and uh, good governance and transparency. And, and we have to attack climate change and is against racism and misogyny. And here's Trump who, you know, is gaslighting everyone who has pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement, 
who fashions himself as a wrecking ball pointed at the liberal democratic order, you know, ooh, this is just going to be so rich. And the reality on the ground was, yeah, okay, there were a lot of African diplomats who were not uh, pleased about the fact that a man who had used a, a very a filthy, crude term to denigrate an entire continent of people was somehow being celebrated. Uh, all of the non-governmental organization people, the academics, you know, they were they were not uh, happy to see Trump. But the people who mattered, I mean, the again, the tech and finance executives who actually pay the bills in Davos, they could see right through this. I mean, they, they, they might say, well, we'd prefer that he not uh, talk about the U.S. national debt, like some sort of, you know, loan uh, that his failing casino operation uh, is on the hook to a, a Deutsche Bank. Uh, we could live without the misogyny and the, and the racism. But boy, we sure do like those tax cuts and that deregulation. And so we're, we're for it. Uh, and Schwartzman, you know, understood this early. I mean, Schwartzman has a, one of Schwartzman's many residences. I mean, he, he owns them the way most of us uh, own socks, uh, is close to Mar-a-Lago. He and Trump dined together quite a bit. Trump had, uh, had, had given Schwartzman the understanding that um, he was going to fill his administration with the sorts of people Schwartzman could do business with. And of course he does. I mean, he brings in Steve Mnuchin to run the treasury, who's another guy like Schwartzman, who's made a fortune on the foreclosure crisis. Uh, he, he takes Wilbur Ross, a guy from the private equity world, and puts him in charge of the Commerce Department. He, he puts uh, compliant people into all the regulatory positions as if you know lobbyists are now running the federal government itself. Uh, and Schwartzman's great dream is that he's going to be able to break into the, the next great frontier of retirement investing, uh, which is uh, 401k funds, to get them into uh, so-called alternative assets like hedge funds and private equity, which is a chance for him to uh, stick uh, fees uh, on, onto account holders. But Schwartzman, you correctly note, you know, is most uh, prominently involved <coughs> excuse me, in investing heavily into American healthcare in the run-up to the pandemic. He, he, he grasps that this is where the money is. There's $3.8 trillion a year being spent on healthcare in the United States alone. And in 2016, he spends about $6 billion to buy up a company called Team Health. This is a company that staffs uh, emergency rooms with uh, all sorts of personnel. Schwartzman is a guy who understands, you know, much like a casino magnate uh, who makes their money in a darkened room where people are drinking uh, and understands that's a good way to keep people at the tables, to have them drinking and not know what time it is. Uh, to make your money in the emergency room, that's a particularly sweet part of healthcare because, of course, the people showing up in the emergency room are less likely to be uh, familiar with the details of their insurance policies or be in the state to ask about, you know, who's paying for this? What's this going to cost me? I'm just going to sign right here on the dotted line so I can go see the people wearing the white coats back there. Uh, and Team Health is at the center of what's become known as the surprise billing scandal. The surprise is not of the happy variety. This is, you know, people thinking that they are in hospitals that are part of their health insurance plans only to discover later that they've signed away the right uh, to uh, be treated by somebody in network. They're, they've signed acceptance to be treated out of network, and now they're being billed at just incredible rates. Uh, people of, of lesser means find that they're hassled by uh, collection agents for months afterwards. 
And uh, this is, you know, part of a whole wave of the financialization of American healthcare. This is how American healthcare becomes part of our economy functioning, not unlike your local Starbucks or or an airline where the people coming in the door are less patients than they are customers. The people working in emergency rooms are costs to be contained and, and products need to be sold in the form of tests. Revenue needs to be maximized. And just like you know, your airline wants every seat on your plane full, uh, if you own a hospital or a medical practice, you want your facilities to be packed. This is how in the three decades leading up to the pandemic, the U.S. loses roughly a third of its hospital rooms. This is a central part of the explanation for why the supposedly wealthiest, most powerful country on earth with several months lead time to note what's happening in China and other parts of Asia, and then Italy just is overwhelmed by the pandemic and has people dying on gurneys in hospital room quarters, has frontline medical workers treating people without any kind of PPE. At the center of that is people like Steve Schwartzman, who have cannily invested uh, into a sphere that sh should be treated very differently than we treat Starbucks and airlines. Now, this might not be something that you can necessarily speak on, but do you know about, you know, the the view, how these these different Davos men view each other? Like, what, what does Benioff think of Schwartzman? What does Fink think of Schwartzman? Are they friends? Are they enemies? That's a great they... question. Uh, Benioff, who, who's the guy who talked to me for the book, uh, really chafes at the idea that he's included with these other guys. I mean, he sees himself as, as a good guy. Uh, first of all, he engages in that whole sort of like bohemian mysticism shtick that's now become a Silicon Valley cliche. I mean, he he doesn't pal around with Schwartzman. Uh, I assume he knows Fink. He's been on panel discussions with Fink. I don't know how friendly they actually are. Benioff sees himself as like a cool kid, right? He's a guy who uh, he he um, has Hawaiian themed parties where he flies in the black eyed peas, you know, for his buddies while they're walking around in Hawaiian costumes, drinking Hawaiian themed cocktails. Uh, but they all I argue, are part of this tribe that presents itself as agents of human progress when they are, in fact, enablers of the status quo. And that's the thing that we have to understand, that they, they are all skilled at taking this stance as change agents, being on the side of the collective public interest as if there is such a thing, like they're our friends when they're really predators. They are, they are trying to rip our, our faces off. And we need to disabuse ourselves of this notion that it's any other way. And that doesn't mean we demonize them. It doesn't mean we take their wealth. It just means we get back to things that we used to have, like progressive taxation and labor rules and antitrust enforcement. Yeah, I, I think that one of the, the central myths that the Davos men sort of pervades is this idea that the government, you know, isn't isn't capable of, of stepping in and helping people. And part of this is because the government over the past 40 years or so has really been, uh, you know, Im impacted in a negative way, especially because it's been pillaged. Yeah. And, and you know, it does, you know, if, if Mark Benioff listens to this, like, I think it would be, you know, interesting if he was a bit more uh, critical of some of his fellow Davos men and, I, you know, something I'm wondering is, do you know of anyone, you know, in the sort of Davos class having read your book? And have you been in contact with anyone and heard feedback from them? 
I mean, the only thing that I would call feedback is uh, the World Economic Forum itself put up a blog saying that they really appreciate my description of inequality. And of course, it's so important, but they take issue with how I've characterized the forum itself. No, it's it's been um, crickets from Davos, man. I, I, I think, you know, Davos, man, has this uh, kind of criticism priced in, and that's why it's so difficult to take on Davos Man, because Davos Man is particularly skilled at taking the attacks and turning them into, you know, proof that Davos Man is on the right side of history. I mean, it's been interesting, for instance, to see Fink has been attacked from the right. Uh, the state of Texas has come after Fink for his latest uh, shareholder letters where he's, uh, you know, championing uh, the need to take on climate change. And the state of Texas said, well, maybe we need to pull our pension funds out of BlackRock if he's going to threaten to uh, divest from fossil fuel companies. And that actually prompted Fink to say, no, 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 I'm not talking about divesting from fossil fuel companies. Uh, I, I think fossil fuel companies need a seat at the table. We, Everyone needs to join together to, to solve these problems. But I think he's actually strengthened by being attacked by fossil fuel companies because that uh, lends credence to the idea that he must actually really be trying to change something when, in fact, uh, he's quietly amassed a $15 billion investment stake for Saudi Aramco uh, to expand their natural gas pipelines in, in Saudi Arabia. And this is, you know, just a couple of years after uh, the murder of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi at the hands of the Saudi regime. So the attacks themselves are, are, are Davosman's very skillful at turning them to his advantage. Thank you so much for talking to us about your book, Davos Man. Um, before we wrap up, is there any final statements that you would like to make about Davos Man? And are you working on anything now, uh, you know, to further uh, your discussion of this subject matter? Sure. Well, first of all, I think the most important thing we need to understand is that none of this has happened by accident. You know, this this bottom up transfer of wealth, it's, it's happened it's not a conspiracy, but it's happened by design. And we need to uh, get out from under these false binary choices that Davos Man has foisted on us, where, you know, we're supposed to believe that we either can have the miracles of COVID vaccines and Google and Uber and Amazon and central air conditioning, uh, or and, and we accept tremendous inequality as part and parcel of that, or we monkey with that successful formula, and then we end up like Venezuela. Uh, I mean, if, if, if we even if we talk about progressive taxation or antitrust enforcement, a Davos man would have the world believe that we're like, you know, Bolsheviks at, at, at the gates. And we need to get out from under. We're going to have capitalism. We should celebrate capitalism as a source of growth and dynamism and innovation. But it needs rules or it isn't real capitalism anyway. It's corporate welfare for monopolists. Uh, so, you know, that would be my biggest takeaway. I'm now working on a book on the uh, great supply chain disruption, which uh, I think is uh, badly in need of contextual understanding. Yes, it's partially about the pandemic, but it's about uh, decades of just-in-time uh, manufacturing uh, mechanisms by which uh, we organized our societies around satisfying consumers with the cheapest possible goods, which has been great for big box retailers. Uh, it's been great for shareholders. It has been good if, we're, if we look at people just narrowly as consumers, though it's eliminated a lot of choice. And it's left us not at all resilient 
and the pandemic has swamped those systems. So that's that's the book I'm working on next. Well, thank you so much, Peter. I, I look forward to reading that book and hopefully can have you on in the future once it's published. Love it. Thank you so much, Caleb, for these great yeah. questions. Thank you.